0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast. I'm Kristen Roberts, head of news here at McClatchy, and I'm sitting at my desk in Miami where the politics are still ugly, but the rest of it is beautiful. With me is Mr. Alex Rorty, a political correspondent and general knower of things. Welcome, Alex.
1: I think that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me, Kristen, general knower of things. I'm not sure it's true, but I do appreciate it.
0: And welcome back to our show's other political correspondent, Dave Cadenese, who will certainly have smart things while Alex and I argue with one another.
2: Absolutely, but I'm ready to argue too. You know, that's, I can do that as well, so. Dave likes to mix it I up. I like to mix yeah, it up, good arguments. you know, play devil's advocate. Hopefully I bring a little of that to the rumble today.
0: All right, let's have some fun, because coming up on today's show, Alex is going to interview Gil Duran. He is the opinion editor for the Sacramento Bee. And before that, he was a longtime veteran of Democratic politics in California and someone who at least briefly worked for Kamala Harris. Those two are going to take a deeper look at Harris's reputation in California and her history as a prosecutor. But first, Alex, Dave, and I are going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about the politics of of this historic and yet incredibly safe selection. And Dave, I want you to go first because I think almost everybody knew for a very long time that Harris was going to be the choice But how close was Biden actually in real life to going a different way, to choosing someone else?
2: I mean, I think the fact that Karen Bass, another California member of Congress and Susan Rice, who was on nobody's list at the start of all this, got real momentum in July meant that there were at least members of the vetting committee and members of top Biden advisors that were looking at alternatives, really kicking the tires and seeing, is there a better option there? We know some members of the Biden committee were uncomfortable with Harris, had questions about whether she would put her own political ambitions ahead of Biden's if he becomes president. But having said all that in the end, I think if you look at it on paper, I think if you look at it on television screens when they had their appearance yesterday, She made the most sense for the most amount of reasons, having been tested through a national political campaign herself, a black woman, an Asian woman. She checks two historic boxes there and someone who was elected to the largest state and uh, was a prosecutor. So obviously well qualified to do it. You know, people were asking me yesterday, why her? Why her over all these other women, uh, other, you know, women of color, frankly. And I think the fact that she ran for president and like had to go through debates and had to go through dozens of cable television interviews, you know, kind of going through the fire matters. And that made her less of a risk than these other fresher faces who just hadn't been through the gauntlet.
0: So, Alex, can you please concede for even like half a second that this doesn't actually matter? That outside of Sarah Uh. Palin, (laughs) I mean, really, seriously, outside of Sarah Palin, when has the Veep mattered?
1: No, actually, we're in. Total agreement on that. And I know that, I know that will surprise you, but I was actually trying to think back the last time a vice presidential selection really made any difference in the eventual margin of victory. And frankly, I'm not even sure Sarah Palin did. She, she definitely mattered. She was obviously a force unto herself in 2008, but that was a race that particularly after the financial collapse, Barack Obama was always going to win big. And in fact, he won it big over John McCain. So. You know, the history of this, there is a usual pattern, right? That there is an intense amount of speculation about who is going to be selected as the vice president. There is about 72 hours of wall-to-wall coverage of that person after they're picked. And then we effectively start to forget that they exist, with the exception of their convention speech and, of course, the vice presidential debate. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that this selection will be the same. Right. I mean, this is still ultimately a race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And frankly, you could even go further than that and say this is really a race about Donald Trump, at least so far in a referendum on him. And the degree to that Joe Biden's running mate is really going to affect people's opinions. Eh, You know, if we're talking about the sort of political upside or downside, as far as for Biden's sake, the way I look at this, look, Kamala Harris does not do much for the Bernie left. Right. She is not a a Bernie Sanders style progressive or Democratic socialist. And I think you have seen that in some of the commentary. But to me, the Democratic voters, this is a concession to, are those Democrats who did not think of Joe Biden as their first choice for the nomination through almost all of the Democratic primary until the very end, until South Carolina, where they almost literally just had no other choice between him and Bernie Sanders. And this is Joe Biden saying Look, I understand that many of you wanted someone who was a little more progressive, someone who was not an older white man, someone who was a woman of color. And, and here you go. And these are, to be clear, these are voters who always, always were going to vote for Joe Biden. No doubt about it. But again, if we're talking upside, what they, what might happen now is that they're willing to, to donate to Biden's campaign. They're willing to volunteer for Biden's campaign, a campaign that doesn't necessarily have a lot of enthusiasm. In support of it, as opposed to opposition to Donald Trump might now capture some of that enthusiasm. And in fact, we saw the Biden campaign announce that it had raised $26 million. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah.
0: It's extraordinary. It, it mm. was the best hour of his campaign. Right. And I
1: think you could say, and I'd be curious what Dave makes of this too, but you know, the speeches that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris gave Wednesday, though very strange because of course of the, the pandemic circumstances, they couldn't even embrace much less uh, hold hands in celebration, but The speeches were good. You know, Joe Biden, sometimes he he is not always guaranteed to deliver a very strong speech. Well, in a moment that a lot of people were watching, certainly in the political world, he gave a very strong speech. Kamala Harris gave a very strong speech. And I think more than anything else, underscored what a lot of Democrats will see as her primary strength in this campaign, not just motivating some different parts of the Democratic coalition, but bringing that prosecutorial experience and background to make the case against Donald Trump, a case that she described as open and shut. And maybe what was the the, the biggest soundbite from yesterday's speeches?
0: So, Dave, I feel like I've read so many piping hot takes this week about Kamala Harris, and you know why Biden picked her and what she does for the black vote. But I kind of feel like. The pickle Kamala Harris had nothing to do with the black vote. Biden had the black vote all sewn up. And if we're going to go ahead and be super reductive about this, which clearly everybody is going to be super reductive about this this week, is this not the choice that Biden should make in order to continue to have a chance with working class white men?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this goes back to the, is she going to really matter in a month? One Republican operative say that I'd be shocked if she matters beyond September 15th. Like she's gonna matter for the next two weeks during the conventions where she will make the speech and then be attacked probably in speeches. But then I had a Republican operative email me last night said, this is great because this takes Ohio out of play because she's bad on energy and the energy crowd doesn't like her. I don't know the answer to whether she's gonna attract white working class men yet, or frankly, jack up African-American turnout in Milwaukee and Detroit. I think we're not going to know until show me polling after Labor Day. I know you don't like polling, Kristen, but I want to see some evidence of this first, because I am a little skeptical that this is going to change the race dramatically either. I mean, Biden is sitting at about a plus eight national lead right now. He's about plus four to five in the battleground states that matter. Does that fundamentally change three weeks from now? That will be my metric to whether she really matters. The only difference is like this is historic, right? We've never had a woman of color on a ticket. So we as political junkies have lived with Kamala for like two years now, but there's going to be a lot of people. I mean, I think there's a morning console poll. 20% of people could not identify her, didn't know anything about her. So there's going to be a portion of the country, millions of people that will be seeing her for the first time. And that's going to look different for a lot of people. Just a black Woman on stage, you know, or on a live stream now, I should say, is going to be a different thing. And like, we shouldn't underestimate that either. We shouldn't underplay that either. So, three weeks, that's when I think we'll have a better handle on your question.
1: And to be clear, I don't. I don't think Kamala Harris's pick was as much about the African American community. I would say it's really about younger to middle wage women, particularly I think professional women. You know, during the campaign, the voters that she really attracted and was popular with really had a lot of overlap with Elizabeth Warren, yeah. For instance, and and I think that that is really where again these are these are women who would never vote for Donald Trump, and they're not going to stay home either. They're going to vote for Joe Biden. But now are they more enthusiastic? And and, and look in a hyperpolarized era. That sort of enthusiasm matters, right? It's not just that you kind of hold your nose and vote for the persons, that you're excited that you're, you know, even on your own platforms like Facebook are promoting the candidacy that you're showing that you're excited, that that helps draw other people in.
0: So... Really now, I'm going to begin the countdown to the first misogynistic story about what a difficult woman she is to deal with, how demanding she is, and how aggressive she is, and how angry she is. So I'm putting down my marker. The timer starts now. And and let's see which news organization goes for that that storyline first. But Alex, I want to hear your conversation with Gil Duran.
1: We'd like to do something a little bit different on this week's show because of the importance of Kamala Harris's selection as Joe Biden's running mate. We're going to talk to someone who has really witnessed her career up close over the span of almost nearly two decades now in California politics. Gil Durant, who is the opinion editor for the Sacramento Bee, joins us now. Again, a longtime veteran of California politics, California Democratic politics, someone who served as former Governor Jerry Brown's press secretary and the communications director for Senator Dianne Feinstein. Gil, welcome uh, to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, thanks for having me. So Gil, let me just ask you to, to start with here. What is it that you think is the most important thing for people to know about Kamala Harris, people who haven't been tracking her career nearly as closely as you, people who maybe are just finding out about her right now?
3: Kamala Harris is a star and she's one of California's most successful politicians. She's managed to have a career rising up out of San Francisco that's been pretty meteoric. Landed her all the way to the United States Senate in a pretty short period of time, and she has often beaten the odds in every step of her career. When she ran for district attorney of San Francisco, she actually ran against her former boss, who was the powerful sitting DA, an older white man with long ties to the city, and audaciously, she beat him. When she ran for attorney general, becoming the first woman first woman of color to become the attorney general, she ran against the district attorney valet, An older white man with a lot of law enforcement support beat him by a very slim margin, but it was still a victory. So people who've been watching Kamala see her as a person with a lot of momentum and as someone who's just sort of a, a star who now the rest of the country is starting to recognize for that, that star power and celebrity.
1: How would you describe her ideologically? Because nationally, at least, nationally, there has been this ongoing debate that started when she won election to to the Senate and really continued through her presidential campaign. And, And I would say, frankly, I'm not sure that her presidential campaign really settled it, whether or not she is, you know, at this kind of Bernie Light style liberal or progressive that she at times, I think, tried to portray herself as, or if she's closer to being more of a pragmatic Democrat in the New York Times yesterday in Breaking the News, called her a pragmatic Democrat. What do you think?
3: Well, the rest of the country tends to regard California as far left, radical, crazy socials, which is what the Trump campaign is attempting to roll out on on Kamala. But here in California, the knock on Kamala Harris is that she's super cautious. She's always been very cautious. She stayed out of Arguments where her endorsement, where her power might have made a difference. Even last year when the legislature was debating a law that would have limited the use of deadly force by police, Harris would not take a position. And this is 2019, we're talking about. And you know, that was before the death of George Floyd. Now Kamala Harris is completely in support of, you know, she changed in the in the fall when she revamped her campaign. So I would say that the knock on her has been she's been cautious, that she's been careful to stay out of things that might harm her future path. So I think it's hard to peg her as a radical. I think pragmatic is sort of in the right zone of definitions there. But you know, outside of California, it's easy to make everyone think that what's happening in California is somehow radical. Here in her own state, however, people view her as someone who is very cozy with law enforcement, very cozy with tech companies, and an extreme moderate, if anything.
1: Obviously, as a former district attorney and former attorney general, her record is longest on criminal justice. And and that's been something of an issue, I both a debate in California and and nationally particularly in this moment um, where there is so much attention paid to racist police violence and the problems that is created, I think, particularly in the African-American community. Gil, how do you view her record? And what do you think is is fair criticism? What do you think is maybe unfair criticism about her record?
3: I think there's a lot of fair criticism of her record. Kamala Harris came up through the legal profession. She came up as a district attorney, as a prosecutor, then as the attorney general, and there were a lot of situations in which she could have made a decision that would have been more righteous and just, at least to the lens of 2020, and she didn't do that. But in order to get to a higher level in politics, people are often cautious and don't take positions in real time that they later wish that they had. So I think it's tough. No one expected this to be the election where defunding the police and really reforming police departments to this extent was such a big issue. And so I think that there is some legitimate criticism there, but there were also some things that Harris tried to do that were more progressive, trying to get, you know, drug offenders and other people back on track, trying to reduce recidivism. There've been a, a slate of reforms in California over the past few years to reduce the prison population, to provide more reentry programs for people getting out of prison, and there was some degree of a role she played in that that was mostly the governor and the legislature. So, I really think that the the question going forward will be whether Harris dives into that role and takes the criticism she's received and makes use of it to actually deliver finally on the hopes a lot of people have put in her as a progressive prosecutor.
1: Yeah. I mean, so much, I mean, naturally, because again, she was a district attorney, she was an attorney general, her record is in criminal justice, Mm -hmm. right? Some of the thing that's almost been lost in in all this after her selection, I mean, she only won election to the U.S. Senate in 2017, right? And she hadn't been a lawmaker before then. And I know talking with some progressive activist nationally there's i mean there's still open questions about really what her economic priorities are or what her economic plan is what how, how do you see her when it comes to to healthcare or other economic issues what do you think her sort of like ideological bearings are on on those issues
3: i think one of the problems with her campaign and why it failed so badly was that she had a hard time staking out what those positions were i don't think anybody ever got a clear sense a lot of them were attempts to sort of take a bit of this side and a bit of that side and triangulate towards something that would not be too too radical but that would also try to placate the Berniecrats. Uh, so I think that's a really unanswered question of course now all that matters is what biden's platform is because I think we've got to remember that the vice president is is you know sort of second second banana maybe even lower than that it's not it's not the power position she's going to get a lot of attention because of her her star power and her her celebrity but really it'll be the Biden team calling the shots in terms of where the policy goes but as Kamala said I, I think i saw a new york times story this morning you know she's not here to redo the system she's not here to you know remake society and we see that that tepidness in her proposals across the board for for the most part we don't see a a radical, which is why it's funny to watch the Republicans trying to peg her as a radical because it's just not, I don't think that's going to fly. It's not, it's not the case.
1: That leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask you. I mean, what what do you think happened in a fundamental way to her presidential campaign? She didn't even make it to the Iowa caucuses. This is someone who on paper at early points in that race looked like a potential favorite to win the nomination. I know that's a, that's a, that's a big old question to throw your way, but what do you, what do you think fundamentally went wrong for her in that race?
3: Well, I think it was a lot of symbol and not a lot of substance. I think she was relying on her star power to carry her through this. And actually, people ask detailed questions. People want to know your policy. People are going to inspect your past. And when you claim that you were, you know, playing a heroic role as a progressive prosecutor, and people go back and dig through your record and find out that's not the case, they're gonna hit you on that. Politics is a blood sport, it's a brutal practice, it's it's not easy. And she got called on some of her deficiencies and in addition you saw her staff having a war with itself in the pages of politico and the new york times and once your staff starts fighting in in the public like that it's really hard to look like you're the person who can lead the the country and i think i wrote a column at the time that said you know you can't run the country if you can't run your your campaign a lot of people who support kamala harris were very angry about that but it proved to be the case and uh, you know it seemed like once you've revived and revamped your campaign Three times, it's not clear anymore what you stand for, and if you can manage the situation properly, and if you can't manage your own team toward victory, it's hard to build a case that you should be in charge of a country that is in serious disrepair and de- decay after the Trump period, and with major problems facing us in the future because of the pandemic.
1: You know, you, know, you made some headlines um, recently when the Sacramento Bee endorsed Karen Bass as as Joe Biden's running mate. Can you take readers through some of that decision? And is there any lingering disappointment on your part that the the congresswoman was not the selection?
3: No, I think, look, this was Joe Biden's choice to make, you know, and we who have been watching Kamala very closely for years have some doubts about whether she can turn her symbol into into substance. We're going to find out now. And I think the most important thing about Kamala Harris is that she is the antithesis of Trump you know if the choice is not going to be between whether Kamala should be more progressive or should have been in the past the question is going to be whether we want four more years of of what the american people have just seen and i think that joe biden has made his choice and and now we're going to find out whether it was the right choice and uh, i think that you know she'll help his ticket but ultimately this is a contest between biden and trump not between harris and trump no matter what they try to say i think a, an important thing to remember and i think one of the things that made kamala appealing to biden even though people thought it might hamper her chances of getting the, the the nod was that she threw so many elbows at him during the debates and this is about to be the ugliest and most brutal presidential campaign in history most likely and i think of all the candidates and all of their attributes and we felt very strongly that karen bass had definitely the qualifications to have the slot Kamala showed that she's a fighter and she's already been through this rough and tumble process for the past two years. And so she's ready for more. And I think that's going to be an important asset for Biden to have. He got a taste of the elbow and I guess he liked it. And now he's going to put her into service against the Trump war machine.
1: I mean, Gil, that was my next question is, I mean, look, what matters most is what happens over the next three months, right? I mean, that is going to, you know, that's where the presidential, the rest of the presidential election is going to play out. And, and my question to you is, do you think that she has the chops to be a real asset to the vice president?
3: I definitely think so. In terms of the way that the media fight is going to take place, the war of sound bites, the war of tweets, uh, I think that's the calculation they've made. And I'm, I'm sure that they have polls and focus groups that show that she's a big asset. I don't think they would have chosen her just based on a whim or on a personal feeling. I think there's a lot of science that goes into this. And ultimately, we're going to have to decide whether we want a couple of imperfect Democrats who can restore some normalcy to this country or whether we want a continuation of Donald Trump's corrupt fascist clown show. And that'll be the choice for people to make. So I do not worry that she will be unable to perform in such a clear cut. Situation. I think it's a lot different than the campaign, where obviously she started off very powerfully but soon failed. I also think the pandemic has the effect of keeping everything very controlled. Everything's on Zoom now, everything's, you know, tweets. Uh, It's not like you're being chased down the halls by reporters and have a chance to have a gaffe or slip up. And so I think this kind of works against Trump, who needs rallies to get his energy, and works for people like Harris, who has been very potent on social media.
1: I think one of the, the most prominent questions politically about what she brings to the ticket is whether or not she is able to excite an African American electorate, whether or not she can excite even more broadly than that, a black and Latino electorate or an Asian American electorate. Do you think that, that she has that ability? And why do you think she would be able to do that now if it didn't necessarily happen for her in the Democratic primary?
3: Well, first of all, I definitely think she is energizing for people of color, for women. Almost across the board, not for progressives, but again, progressives have to weigh their fears of Kamala Harris versus what Trump will bring with four more years. I think uh, it, the VP is a different role. in a, in, a, in a big way, it's sort of a marketing role. People have Biden, who they felt maybe was the safe pick, the most trusted pick, somebody they've known for a long time. And so, in addition to that, you get this younger, more energetic presence who brings all of these different elements to the ticket that Biden could not. And so I think the combination of those two could be pretty potent. And I definitely think, I mean, I'm seeing in my social media feeds, all the women in my life very excited. There's a real energy there. We saw the fundraising go through the roof after she was announced. So I don't think there's any question that she brings that energy. The question is whether that energy can overcome whatever we're going to be facing over the next three months in this very unusual and unprecedented election.
1: I mean, I think that is almost the the chalk assessment, right? Of Joe Biden picking Kamala Harris, that it was the safe pick um, for for him. Do you? I mean, do you agree with that? Is it a safe pick?
3: I don't know that anything's safe anymore when you're going up against Donald Trump in a situation like this. I would assume that when people say safe, they mean that that's the the pick that appeared to pull and focus group the best. Having been in many campaigns myself, that was going to be a huge factor. And if they felt that even she gives them a two or three or four point margin of victory i think that was going to make a big difference and so she might have been the smartest pick i would put it that way safety we we can we can talk about safety once we are past november 3rd <laughs> then we'll know <laughs> uh, the the meaning of a story is found in, in its ending not necessarily its beginning or its middle so we're still in the middle of the story uh, but the, Kamala got a comeback and if she, if she gets to the white house with biden then she's going to be a very formidable presence in our politics for a long time to come.
1: Gil Duran, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciated your time. Hey, thanks.
0: All right, cool. Let's go to my favorite part of the show where you guys tell me something I don't know and hopefully tell our listeners something they don't know as well. And you are up first, Dave.
2: All right. So now with the veepstakes gone, unfortunately, I love the veepstakes. We can't have the veepstakes anymore. (laughs) So we've got Dave, what are we gonna write about? I know. It was my like fun, you know, fun beat for a month and now it's gone. So store ideas come my way, but I did a little research this morning on convention bumps, right? The next time we have a podcast, the we'll have uh, the democratic convention will have been through between the years 1964 and 1996. The average convention bump was 6.5 points. This is according to the University of Wisconsin's political center that dropped from the year 2000 to 2016 to just two points. So the thing that you don't know is that while there's going to be a lot of hype about convention bumps, they have been declining since 1964. And given that there's not even real conventions this year, I would I would doubt that there's even going to be more than a two percent bump this year in 2020.
0: For real, this convention is going to be the best convention. Can we just <laughs> always do our conventions like this? Like you, a don't wanna the convention? you don't want to go to the parties? You
2: don't want to go to the after parties? Dude, and I'm like a-
0: social distancing forever. That's where <laughs> I'm at.
2: The,
1: uh, the, the broken lizard is really disappointed.
0: <laughs> God, that's so true. Stop with the flashbacks. All right, Alex, your turn.
1: <laughs> half a billion dollars. That is what my reporting shows. Democratic outside groups like Priorities USA or American Bridge or dozens of other groups are expected to spend on this election. It's an estimate that is agreed upon even by some Republicans who are tracking the spending uh, that I spoke with. And look, half a billion dollars is a considerable amount of money, even in a presidential election. And I think it really underscores just how important this whole constellation of outside groups and super PACs supporting Joe Biden has been. I mean, not just because of the money, but that you had a candidate who emerged from the primary broke with little staff and little ability to return fire against the so-called Death Star from Donald Trump. Now, obviously, world events intervene, and that's what really drove President Trump's approval ratings down. But some of these groups, as I will detail in a story to be published this week, I'm ClatchyDC.com, we make a, a somewhat convincing case that they have helped amplify those problems for Trump, spending tens of millions of dollars. And, and critically, you, one important detail I will share, it's not just about the spending, it's about the level of collaboration and cooperation among all these groups that are con- talking almost daily with one another, making sure that their efforts are... Working together and not working against one another. It was interesting reporting this week going through it and, uh, hope everyone enjoys the story.
0: The one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about this week that I really want to talk about next week are these incredibly effective Donald Trump ads. I'm just throwing that out there.
1: Which ones?
0: The old lady getting her house broken into and she dials 911 oh, and nobody my Lord. answers.
1: We, okay. uh, I'm glad you brought that up because we needed to disagree at least once on this show. And it was going to be weird if we did And now we disagree. Dude, just save we it. Disagree. We're doing
0: this next week. This is a note to our listeners. We are uh, now now going at it Preview. Uh, over the effectiveness of the Trump ads. He's it's got easy. another round coming out on taxes. I'm telling you, that this is a thing. August is always a thing for this guy. Alright, so thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer Devin Coburn and all of his Wi Fi problems today. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and whatever other podcast app you might use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.